Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, housing, gas, groceries, all of it's costing more. We do a deep dive into Canada's inflation crisis. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. As you've probably learned by now, we do things a little bit differently for our weekend show. We take a big issue, a big question, and we do a deep dive into it with a panel of experts who can give it the light and truth and honesty that it very much needs. And one of the most pressing issues that we're seeing in Canada and around the world right now is inflation. I don't even need to tell you that inflation is happening. You're seeing it at the grocery store. You're seeing it when you're filling up your gas tank. I've, you know, typically just tried to avoid the price of gas, but at the same time, it just brings me so much pain when I do see how much we're paying. But here's the thing. You look at the numbers, you look at it in an abstract sense, and we know that Canada has met an 18-year high for inflation. In the U.S., they've hit a a 30-year high. And as much as we hear that number of, you know, between 4 and 5% as what we're on track for, you look at some products and these increases that you're seeing are up by 10, 15, 20%. And for a lot of Canadians, they're wondering, when is this going to stop? And I want to delve into this, as I said, with a a great panel of guests. We have Franco Terrazano, who's the federal Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Catherine Swift, who is the president of Working Canadians, and Philip Cross, a senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute and former chief economic analyst for Statistics Canada. Franco, Catherine, Philip, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here, Andrew. I want to start with you on on this, Philip, and I guess the diagnosis of it, because I I know that we have seen a lot of talk about inflation. We have all of the central banks talking about it. The media is starting to talk about it. But I do find that the conversation has been getting a little bit muddled when people start talking about supply chain issues as being the driving force behind a lot of these price increases. Now, I know that the inflation is unavoidable, but how much of an effect is the supply chain struggle having on these increases we're seeing, or are they really two entirely separate discussions? I think we should separate them out. Uh, I, certainly supply chains are a big issue in this. I mean, there isn't a uh, anything that I've ordered or gone into a store recently, and, you know, the owner has complained that, uh, you know, I tried to buy a simple light bulb the other day, and the guy told me, well, it's going to be a few weeks if it's in Canada, it's going to be months if we have to get it from China. So, you know, supply chain issues are certainly a, a, a part of this. But I think, you know, I think people are quite right to say, well, we'll sort out the supply chain issues, particularly once we get past Christmas and the, the peak of consumer buying. We'll see that drop down, but I don't see overall inflation going away that easily. Uh, I think we're already seeing uh, inflation starting to become embedded into wages, into people's expectations. And uh, I think that's where central banks really start to worry that, Yes, we're going to have to raise interest rates faster and more often next year uh, because this problem isn't just going to go away overnight. I'll turn to you on this, Catherine. Obviously, we see as consumers when we go to the store, when we try to fill up our gas tank, even buying homes, that inflation's happening. But again, businesses are are dealing with this as well, and and they've either got to pass it on to consumers or uh, absorb it. Uh, How are businesses uh, addressing this? Well, in all kinds of different ways, um, and although I certainly agree with Philip that that uh, the, the supply chain thing is is a part of this, uh, it it is it is transitory, as, as a lot of the Bank of Canada and other monetary policy folks have been saying. 
that will be transitory. However, the policies of governments to effectively print money, and although it's not technically printing anymore, it's, it's you know, electronically creating money, I guess, uh, is what is going to be enduring here, uh, which is, you know, you've got more and more money in the system and chasing after fewer goods. Uh, so that is going to be the lasting part. But how businesses are dealing with it? Well, they're, businesses right now, by and large, are dealing with all kinds of problems. There's horrible labor shortages. I mean, you walk down any main street right now and you see help wanted, help wanted at every window. Um, they're, they're grappling with that. And that, of course, is inflationary because they're going to have to pay more to find the workers that they need in, in this kind of labor market. Um, and they're facing, of course, higher costs for uh, the, all the inputs into their particular business, whatever that may happen to be. So it's coming at them from all sides. Uh, and obviously, I mean, they're, they're, there's not, in most businesses anyway, there, I guess there's some exceptions, but in most businesses, there's not a huge ability to absorb these increases. They pretty much have to be passed on. So uh, it's gonna be, again, fed back into consumers uh, pricing, and that will encourage inflation to increase even more. So there's, uh, it, it is it is a cyclical thing and and it feeds on itself to a certain degree. So yeah, I I, I totally agree, Philip. This 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 ain't going away anytime soon, unfortunately. I'll go to you on this, Franco. I, I know a lot of people just view in inflation and, and general monetary trends as as being distinct from politics. Even Justin Trudeau arguably takes that position in the election. He had infamously said that he, he doesn't think about monetary policy. But I know you've been very clear to call it an inflation tax that Canadians are paying right now. Explain this and, and how it is, in, in your view, a, a tax issue in, indirectly. Well, you know, there's a myriad of different uh, influences that increase prices, could even decrease prices. But, you know, th this steady march of higher prices stems from the fact that uh, the government can essentially print new dollars out of thin air, but it can't print new farmland, it can't print new cows, and it can't print new houses. So when we're talking about printing new dollars, essentially what we're talking about is the Bank of Canada purchasing financial assets. And we've seen the Bank of Canada create a little bit more than $370 billion during this pandemic, which is a 300% increase in the Bank of Canada's assets. Now, if that sounds like a lot of a lot to you, it's because it is. It's significantly higher growth in the bank's assets um, than what happened during the recession of the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s. And in fact, it rivals in this last year and a half uh, the growth in the bank's assets during the entire six years of World War II. Now, here's how it directly ties into the deficit spending that we're seeing in Ottawa. Now, uh, Finance Minister Christia Freeland, back in April, she released her budget budget 2021, uh, forecasting a $3 billion per week deficit. Now, just two days after that, the Bank of Canada came out and saying it was going to purchase about $3 billion worth of Government of Canada bonds every single week. Now, those forecasts have been revised, but I mean, Andrew, that sure seems to me like that's Ottawa using uh, the printing press to fund its deficit spending. No, I, I think that's a very wise point. And, and let's bring this back to you, Philip. I, I, this is obviously a global challenge right now. Canada is not unique in it. And that's unsurprising because if you do look at it in the context of, of what countries around the world have been dealing with, with pandemic and, and their responses to it in, in the last two years, there are certainly a lot of similarities here. But, but how would countries like Canada be able to fare better than this? How do they beat the curve, if you will, and, and not be a subject to some of these very steep rises? I mean, again, as much as Tiff Macklem wants to say it's transitory, he admits this is not short-lived and, and will continue to increase. Yeah. 
Well, the one thing Canadians should be encouraged by is that the Bank of Canada has been relatively uh, more hawkish about inflation than the other central banks, certainly than the Federal Reserve Board. Now, admittedly, that reflects that the the Federal Reserve Board has been exceptionally easy during uh, accommodating during this pandemic. Um, But in in any event, Macklem certainly was the first to withdraw, uh, to stop the quantitative easing Frankel was just talking about. They have moved up to date. Uh, They've acknowledged that inflation is higher than they expected. And they've acknowledged too that that means that interest rates are gonna start rising faster and sooner than they had planned. Uh, it's unfortunate that you know nobody likes being wrong and it would be nice to live in a world where central banks were perfect. Central banks made a mistake in this pandemic. They thought that the problem was demand and they, they along with the, the government put everything into stoking demand as much as possible. What they didn't realize was the problem really was supply and not demand. Demand came rocketing back, supply didn't. And that's why we have this inflationary problem. Uh, but at least the Bank of Canada, if not the government, is acknowledging that, that they're, they're, they made this mistake. Uh, they're behind the ball now. They're going to have to run a little harder to catch up. But I don't doubt that eventually sometime next year they will catch up. Well, I think you're right to point out that miscalculation in monetary policy, Philip. But I was wondering if you could also speak to how much fiscal policy was aggravating that. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, fiscal policy, uh, you know, the initial reaction of mailing money across the board, sending out checks to everybody probably was the correct thing because we just didn't understand what we were getting into with the pandemic. But very quickly, after two or three months, it became obvious that most industries, manufacturing, construction, retail, finance and real estate, for sure, because housing came rocketing back, business services, a lot of sectors in our economy could adapt to social distancing pretty easily. And at that point, we should have withdrawn this global stimulus to the overall economy and said, okay, we have a sectoral problem. We know that certain personal services have a problem with social distancing. We should be targeting our support there. But instead, for over a year, we kept this blanket support out there. And it was because of this misdiagnosis that the problem was aggregate demand. And in fact, the problem was output in a, in a small, relatively small number of industries. Um, but we kept, uh, you know, we kept this extraordinary stimulus to fiscal and monetary policy going long after we didn't need it. And in fact, instead of focusing on demand, we should have been helping to fix various supply problems, whether it was labor shortages in some of these industries. I mean, it's amazing that in the restaurant industry, simultaneously, we have this industry is operating 25% below where it was below the pandemic, and they still can't find enough workers. So. Uh, you know, these industries have very specific problems, and that's what we should have been working on. I think that's incredibly a valid point. And, and I'll go to you on this, Catherine, because I would say that's still taking place. I mean, even now when countries around the world are are reopening or at least trying to reopen, we still have a, a very a stimulus a stimulus focus, I, I think, in a lot of the policies that, that are still on the books right now. Money still rolling out without that underlying issue being addressed. Yeah, we do to a certain degree. Um, I think too, though, we can't we can't forget about things like carbon taxes and whatnot, uh, because right in the midst of the pandemic, we saw, and even after the Trudeau government said they were not going to increase carbon taxes, they indeed they indeed did increase carbon taxes on April first. 
fool, <laughs> fool on you, taxpayers. Um, but uh, and, and th that carbon taxes naturally factor into the price of absolutely everything we buy. So that also feeds into price increases. But yeah, you're right, Andrew. Uh, labor shortages. The thing is, labor shortages were around pre-pandemic too. And the pandemic had a whole bunch of different effects because of all the money that was sloshing out there. Uh, some people chose not to work or, you know, and some of it was too, they were concerned about going to work because they didn't want to get sick. So there was all kinds of sort of, you know, different variables playing out there. But there were also people that chose, you look at the hospitality industry, for instance, people that found other other things they were going to do for to make a living. So you, you lost a certain proportion, in certain industries, you lost a certain proportion of their workforce probably permanently. And and again, you still have some stimulus, it's not as much, but you still have some, some stimulus going on out there to act as a disincentive to people working. But, you know, labor shortages weren't, weren't, were around well before the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic has worsened them significantly. And there hasn't been enough focus for policy to try to deal with that issue. Yeah, and and I know that uh, it, it's distinct, as Philip mentioned earlier, from the inflation discussion to start talking about uh, some of the the supply chain issues. And I would also add, I think labor shortage issues are, are connected, but but distinct and in their own category. I was in Ottawa a couple of months back. I was at an event at the Westin, and the executive chef of the Westin Hotel, a very nice hotel in Ottawa, was working the barista shift at the Starbucks in the morning because. And I, I asked him about it. He said they literally do not have staff. And when these issues are reported, a lot of the times people will say, well, just pay people more. And that's all well and good in theory. But if businesses are contending with all of these other issues, Franco, where are they going to find that extra money to pay more to overcome that labor shortage? Well, I mean, I think Catherine's already kind of touched on this and that we're going to see higher prices at the till. And, you know, I think the the main point from this whole discussion is, is to remember that all of this inflation, it is not it is not a stroke of accident right, that we're seeing this. This is from government policy or more specifically from how governments have reacted to the pandemic. Now, we've been talking about the inflation tax. We've been talking about the printing press, right? When the when the central bank prints more dollars, our dollars buy less and less. But we also have to look at, at how the other forms of government policies has led to higher prices. Um, we've been talking about some of the subsidies that have been sloshed around, the massively expensive ones that essentially pay people not to work or that we're doing that. So we have to remember uh, when that's going on, we are reducing supply by paying people not to work. Um, we are making it harder for businesses to actually produce, right? Um, but also, we, we have to acknowledge the fact that, of course, government restrictions, government lockdowns are also going to reduce output of an economy. Right. So so we're now we're in this situation. Catherine's mentioned it where where we have the perfect storm of inflation, where you have too many dollars chasing around too few goods. And, and I think this is why we're seeing such big inflation right now. And, and of course, there are ways for politicians to provide us with some relief at the till. Um, Catherine mentioned this again, but I mean, one way to just give us a little bit of relief would be to reduce the gas taxes that we're seeing at the pumps. Yeah, and I think that's one that has been a long-standing challenge. I'll go to you on on this, Philip. I mean, how much of an impact would rolling back that have on on these broader issues? Um, at this point, not a, a large one. I mean, if the, the government has said the carbon tax will eventually rise ten dollars a year to one hundred and seventy, at that point, you know, I'd even want to think about filling up my tank. 
But, uh, you know, the biggest, by far the biggest part of the increase in gas prices over the last year has been the recovery of world oil prices. I mean, West Texas Intermediate is up to $85. Uh, that should be a positive for this country. You know, we're a major oil producer. Um, so, you know, that shouldn't be as big a negative for Canada. Uh, although, you know, there's winners and losers as there is with most economic prices. But I would come back to the, the broader story about distortions introduced by government policies during the pandemic, because I think that gets into some of the deeper issues about this. For example, we saw um, during the pandemic that this country now spends way more on housing than it does on business investment. That's never happened before. Uh, that is a major distortion. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, business investment is the ground, is the basis of productivity growth in this country over the long term. The fact that we're not investing in business uh, is, well, A, one reason why we have shortages in some sectors like oil and gas. We should, we have the resources in this country to produce more oil, more oil and gas. That would help bring the price down, but we erect all kinds of regulations and barriers to stop people from doing that. So uh, I think, you know, when you start to look at the distortions, whether it's in financial markets, whether it's in housing markets, whether it's in labor markets, you know, there, there were a lot of impacts of government policy that were unforeseen and they're coming home to roost now. And I think in the energy sector too, and you were kind of alluding to it there, Philip, <clears throat> you know, we've got Canada, we've got the US right now, discouraging further development of mm. our energy resources. So we're introducing constraints. I mean, seeing Biden, you know, cancel yeah. pipelines and then ask OPEC, can you up your quotas? I mean, come on, give me, <laughs> give me a yeah. break here. Uh, it, it, what, what a ridiculous uh, trying to suck and blow at the same time. We're, we're discouraging the, the development of these resources. So of course we're restricting supply. Of course yeah. their, their prices are going up. So, uh, you know, we're contributing to inflation, that particular type of inflation by our own policy choices. So we can't control a lot of stuff that goes around, uh, goes on around the world, but we can control some stuff and we're not doing a very good job of it right now. Well, I, I would agree with that very much, Catherine. And, and I'll ask you, Franco, because I, I think all of us are in agreement that we can't separate what's happening from government policies that have made things worse. And, and when we talk about carbon taxes and other decisions, they may not be uh, as directly responsible for inflation, but they're certainly not helping the people who are struggling with inflation here. So are we talking about something, though, that is so complex now, it doesn't really have a, a simple lever that's going to ease some of these burdens that, that businesses and families are facing? Well, there are some simple levers. And, and you know, you always hear these politicians who are always talking about, well, we need to improve, improve affordability. We need to improve affordability. Well, if they really wanted to improve affordability, there are easy things that they can do. We just heard an announcement from Premier Doug Ford in Ontario that he is going to be uh, reducing fuel taxes. And, you know, when we talk about the pump price, when we talk about gas taxes, it's not just the carbon tax. Yes, we have seen the carbon tax increase twice since the pandemic started, but we're also talking about provincial and federal gas taxes. We're talking about sales taxes, tax on taxes at the pumps. Um, in May, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation put at an, uh, out an analysis showing that about 31 to 42% of the pump price comes from gas taxes at these two different levels, right? So, so there's certainly ways uh, for politicians to help with affordability in terms of just reducing the tax burden. Um, another thing that 
that Philip talked about was the carbon tax. Eventually, it's going to come to $170 per ton. We saw Trudeau doubling down on that when he was at the climate change gab fest in Glasgow, right? Well, that's going to end up adding about 40 cents per liter to the price of gasoline. But he's not stopping there because he's also getting ready to what what amounts to a second carbon tax through fuel regulations. The federal government thinks that's going to add another 11 cents to the price of gasoline, but some other analysts suggest that it could be even higher. Some say 16 cents per liter of gasoline based on BC's uh, second carbon tax, right? So so we're talking about a, a, a Trudeau carbon tax and second carbon tax that could cost a family uh, about nearly 40 bucks every time they fuel up their minivan. So certainly there are things that politicians can do right now today to provide relief, but they're choosing not to. Philip, the the Bank of Canada has a a 2% target for inflation. As we've discussed, we're already more than double that by the end of the year. Uh, We could be two and a half times that. Anything that government were to do right now, if we were to talk about a government that's going to take a a really aggressive approach to slashing taxes and and cutting regulation and cutting spending and all of these things, it is unlikely to be able to exceed in the current climate the increases that we're seeing from inflation. So are we at that point to go back to the question of, of levers where there is no silver bullet, if you will? Um, well, the government can make it easier on itself if it wound back some of this extreme stimulus and distortions in the economy that we've talked about. But as long as if they leave this to the Bank of Canada to fight, that just means the interest rates are going to have to go up more. And right now, as I say, the Bank of Canada has indicated they're aware that they're they're a little behind the ball and, and they'll catch up. But it's going to be even harder if the, if they don't get any help from fiscal policy. We saw during the pandemic, for example, that fiscal and monetary policy work hand in hand. They were both doing everything they could to to stimulate the economy. Now, as inflation takes off, you know we can't just have only monetary policy working against inflation. It's got to get some help from government. Uh, but at this point, there's just no sign that this government is even ready to acknowledge that there's a problem, let alone take some of the tough uh, spending reduction programs or tax hikes that are going to be needed to address the deficit. Oh, sorry, can I just jump in on that real quick? Yeah, sure. Um, so we're talking about, and, and Philip, you brought up some uh, great points in terms of the massive amount of spending that has been going on during the pandemic. But what, what I, I think it's also important for us to remember is that we're not just spending a ton of money in 2021 and 2020. The federal government was spending a ton of money pre-pandemic. In 2018, the federal government's per person inflated adjusted spending reached all time highs. That means the Trudeau government was spending more before the pandemic than the federal government did during any single year during World War II. And, and so what really what we need to see from on the fiscal side is we need to see the federal government, politicians, bureaucrats willing to share the tough times because what we've seen during this pandemic is a tale of two pandemics, right? The private sector, businesses, workers in the private sector taking it on the chin pay cuts, job losses, business closures. What have we seen in Ottawa? What have we seen in Parliament Hill? Well, our members of Parliament have received two pay raises during the pandemic. There's more than 300,000 federal government employees that received at least one pay raise during the pandemic. So we have to remember, yes, we need to rein in this massive amount of COVID-19 spending, but there is a ton of fat on the federal government's budget, even before considering these COVID-19 subsidies. 
No, I, I appreciate that, Franco. And I, I do want to jump back to you for just a moment here, Philip, because I, I do think you're right to point out that we can't look at just a monetary-only solution here, a, a Bank of Canada-only solution. Uh, you said in a column a, a few months back that, that quantitative easing can sometimes be overstated in what it can achieve. You've pointed out it's uneven and unpredictable at times. Yeah, and it's you know another problem that I just want to build on what Franco uh, mentioned is that, you know, Milton Friedman, who's, you know, the, the god of monetarism, he's the guy who brought back this idea that all inflation has a monetary component. And there's no doubt, everybody agrees that without some accommodation from the money supply, inflation cannot take off. But he also pointed out that one reason the money supply increases, one reason the Bank of Canada or the central banks lose control of the money supply is that society cannot agree on what to, how to pay for things. For example, he cited in the 60s and 70s, the US, they committed the Vietnam War, the Great Society, the deficits took off. And he said at the end of the day, since we couldn't agree on how to pay for it, we got inflation because in his words, inflation is taxation without legislation. That's exactly what we're facing today. You can see the beginnings of people are beginning to look for who's going to pay for this. And the reflexive idea is, oh, we'll just dump this huge bill onto a few corporations and a few wealthy people, and the average person is going to be affected. Well, history shows that that does not work. You cannot raise a lot of money from corporate taxes and wealth taxes. At the end of the day, it's going to be GST. It's going to be middle tax. You know, whenever the government gets in trouble, like in the mid-90s, that's where at the, they'll eventually have to go to get the money. And as a society, we haven't even begun to talk about or think about who's going to pay for this. And it's for the moment, we, we, we seem happy to buy this story of, oh, we'll just uh, slough this off on a few rich people and uh, the rest of us won't pay for it. And that, frankly, that is not going to work. That just shows we as a country are not yet willing to have a serious discussion about this issue. Catherine, that means everyone's paying for it, right? Well, of course, and everyone always does. We love it. Everybody loves to think there's this fantasy. And I mean, Jagmeet Singh right now is promoting this. He should know better. He's not a stupid guy. You know, oh, we're going to have a billionaire's tax. Well, I think there's less than 50 billionaires in Canada. So even if you taxed all of them at 100%, which of course would never happen, you you wouldn't even come close to solving your problem here. No, but you would significantly cut the number of billionaires in Canada. Well, well, that's (laughs) exactly what you would cut. They'd all be gone somewhere else because goodness knows they can afford to go somewhere else. But, you know, and, and again, something that Franco alluded to. We, we talked about carbon tax. There's lots of other taxes out there. And we have seen government grown under under um, political parties of all stripes for decades now as a proportion of the economy. Took a bit of a dip when we almost hit the hit the debt wall back in the mid-90s with Cretchen and Martin in, in power at the time. But whoever was in power then, they would have had to do the same thing because they were being told, you're not going to be able to borrow any more money, guys. So, you know, fix it or have a nice day. But what kills me is government is too big everywhere in this country, federally, provincially, and municipally. Why do we have people doing the same job in the public sector earning more than the identical job in the private sector? You want to talk about inflation? How about the only, virtually the only people left with those rich, defined benefit, gold-plated pensions uh, um, are public sector workers. They're all inflation-adjusted. Wait till the bill comes in for all those pensions that have to be adjusted to a higher level of inflation. And the the private sector, who, of course, pays for government, is going to be footing that bill, too. So 
ultimately, we can talk about tax increases, and yep, uh, they're they're undoubtedly on the horizon. But to not downsize government, we can easily downsize government in this country. We've got way too much of it, and that should also be a focus. And it never is, of course. The, the, the idea is always, how can we charge even more tax? And Canadians, we are much too complacent with this. We have to push back. We're being taxed more than enough as it is on many fronts, income taxes, carbon, uh, and so on. And that should be decreasing and, and give some people some relief. I, I just want to make it clear why I raised the matter of taxes, because right now that's where the public discussion is. People are talking about corporate taxes, wealthy taxes. I quite agree with Catherine. At the end of the day, you don't want taxes to pay for this. You want spending cuts. That's what we did in the mid-90s. 80% of the de deficit reduction was done through spending cuts, only 20% through taxes. That's about the mix or even a, a little more 90-10. That's what economists want. That's the most efficient way. So I just wanted to clarify that. No, and I'm glad you did. But And I think that ties into what you said earlier, Philip, which is that no one's really thinking of the who do we want to pay for this. And and this is a problem in, in politics in Canada. And I know, Franco, you and I have talked about this in the past. I know the Canadian Taxpayers Federation does a lot of work trying to get attention to national debt. And, and sometimes it can be like screaming into a windstorm because people like the things that government buys and, and don't actually pay attention to how it's being paid for. And looking at when the economy economy was doing generally well at the beginning of, of Justin Trudeau's first term, and he was spending a lot and said, well, it's because we can afford to. And then the pandemic comes around and it's, well, we're spending because we need to. And as a taxpayer, I'm like, well, hang on. When, when, is, when, is, it we, when is it we don't spend? If we spend when times are good and, and spend when times are bad, I'm, I'm beginning to think we're, we're just spending here. But there really isn't an end in sight for a lot of this from the government's perspective and from the fiscal perspective. Well, uh, it doesn't seem like there's an end in sight until the end in sight become we become face to face with it, right? I mean, eventually there is no way to get around the fact that you have to pay the piper one way or another, right? We're, we're, we're learning right now with these higher prices, with this inflation tax, that there is no such thing as a free lunch when it comes to government spending. Um, and there, eventually you have to pay the piper, just ask uh, Janice McKinnon in Saskatchewan, just ask Ralph Klein what happens in Alberta, uh, just ask um, the, the federal liberals back in the 90s what happens right so this is this is the big thing that we're trying to get across either you make some tough decisions right now or tougher decisions are going to be forced on you. Remember back in the 90s, what happened in the 80s, the 90s, when Saskatchewan kept kicking the deficit can down the road? Well, eventually the 90s rolled around. Saskatchewan had to close, what was it, about 50 different hospitals across the Prairie Province. So at the end of the day, there is absolutely no way to get around the fact that there is no free lunch for all this government spending. The bill is going to become due. And if you don't want to see these massive cuts in government spending down the road, we have to find some ways to save some money right now. And Andrew, what is so, so unfortunate is that we just got data from the parliamentary budget officer that said under the current trajectory, we wouldn't see a balanced budget until 2070. We saw a budget 2021 brought from our finance minister that nearly doubles the pre-pandemic debt within just six years. And what did every single one of the major federal parties in the last election want to do? Spend billions of dollars more. The NDP wanted $200 billion in new spending. The Liberals wanted $78 billion in new spending. Even the Conservatives could not find a penny of savings in this bloated budget. They wanted to spend about $50 billion more than the last Liberal government budget. It's absolutely detached from financial reality.
We're going to have to have a crisis. I'm convinced we're going to have to face another crisis because, as you say, Franco, uh, none of the parties seem to believe that we have any constraints on government spending. I guess the only the only kind of interesting change this time around will be that because of the pandemic, many, many, many developed countries around the world are in very similar situations. Mind you, we spent more than most other developed countries proportionately during the pandemic. That that is true. Uh, and we didn't get proportionally better results either. We got about the same results that other countries did for all that extra spending. But I think this is going to be kind of a new paradigm because the whole world is in d dire financial straits right now. Let me just ask you for a moment, Catherine, about the effect on business again, to go back to a discussion we had at the beginning, because one of the, the big things for businesses is that they really are getting hit on both ends by inflation. On one hand, all the things they have to buy and, and do as businesses are, are being uh, driven up by inflation. And also, if you're in a, a business that is in a, a discretionary sector, for example, I mean, even arguably, if you're, you're in a, an essential sector as well, if you have to jack prices up, you're not able to sell as many of your goods to people that are feeling the pinch on, on consumers. So so I do feel that businesses are, are getting this. Small businesses in particular are, are stuck be, between both of these aspects of it. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's going to be very, a, a very, very difficult time. We, we all know that there's going to be, you know, there's a lot of pent up demand right now because people couldn't spend money during the pandemic. So as the economy opens, we are going to see a temporary boost uh, where people say, yeah, I really want to go out and buy that, or I really want to go to that restaurant or whatever it happens to be. But that's going to be short lived, I believe. And and that's when we're going to see, uh, you know, uh, more businesses. And let's not forget, many businesses are barely hanging on right now. <laughs> many small, medium sized businesses are, are, are by no means, you know, on a robust financial footing. So I think we're going to see an awful lot more go under, go bankrupt. I've seen early retirements of business people that just said, you know, I was planning to retire in five years, but it's just not worth it in the current environment. I'm going to retire now. Of course, that means the jobs they offered are no longer going to be out there and, and so on and so forth. So I think we're facing, you know, people say the well, that some of our federal uh, um, politicians are saying, oh, the economy will come roaring back. No, no, I think it'll be whimpering back. And I think we're in for a really tough slog for a number of years for a whole pile of different reasons. And yes, small, medium sized businesses in particular will be bearing a lot of the brunt of that. Well, and, and sometimes this roaring back can be a bit deceptive. There was a, a store not too long ago I saw was lined up out the door and I thought, oh, wow, it's good they're doing so well. And it turned out they just didn't have any employees. So it was just moving at a, at a glacial pace. Uh, let's go to you, Philip. Do you buy Catherine's prediction that, that it's only going to be at a crisis point that people start to take this seriously? And, and what would that look like? Oh, I, I think that was plainly obvious during the election. I think it was, it was absolutely uh, amazing to me as an economist that during the election, economic issues were not on the table at all. Uh, clearly, inflation was starting to pick up at that point. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about, well, if inflation does continue to increase, uh, what will high interest rates are going to go up? What do higher interest rates mean for an economy that has taken out an enormous amount of debt? Not just governments, but think of all the households, all that housing we bought was on debt. This is going to be very painful when interest rates start rising next year for a lot of people. We didn't hear a word about that during the election because we as a country were not yet ready to discuss uh, these serious issues. Uh, I think very quickly they're moving up on the, the political agenda very rapidly. I suspect the next election, that will be the major issue. 
so we, yes, we missed an opportunity, um, but, uh, you know, it, these questions are so important, are so pressing, uh, they cannot be kept off the agenda. I would say that oftentimes it's difficult to get people to care about monetary policy, even the ones who should care about it, like politicians. But but for families, Franco, this is not avoidable. I, I mean, even if they don't know the terms or, or don't know the why, they know it's happening, right? Is that enough to get people to pay attention? I think people are already paying attention. So, so I actually disagree a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you go out with your friends, right? What are you talking about? The cost of living, holy, how much, how much of the ground beef costs? How much is bacon costing when I'm making eggs? Um, so I actually think that people do care about this. I mean, every time you go fill up your car, you care about this. Um, every time you put gas in the car, you make a comment. So I think that people are ready to have this conversation. I think the blame falls on politicians. I think it's politicians that don't want to address the, the $1 trillion elephant in the room, which is the federal government's debt. They don't want to address the money printing. Um, they don't want to look in the mirror because if they look in the mirror and address the real problems that are facing Canadians, they're going to have to make tough decisions. So I think Canadians, by and large, are ready to have these very serious discussions because at least the Canadians that I'm talking to, they're feeling the pain of inflation. They're feeling the pain at the pumps every time they go to fuel up their, their F-150, every time they go up to fill up their Honda Court. I think it's these politicians um, that don't want to have these discussions. And Andrew, too, I think these politicians are living in a bubble in Ottawa uh, or, or in Glasgow, wherever they're having these conversations. I mean, when you look at politicians that are completely financially divorced from the reality facing their constituents, these politicians got two pay raises during the pandemic. Uh, it's easy to see why they aren't uh, so worried about the higher cost of living. Yeah, very well said. And, and I, it's kind of become a running joke on this segment. I'll always ask panelists at the end to give us a bit of hope. And every time they, they all just say something terribly depressing. And I, I'm just not even going to ask the question this time, because I think we're all of the same mind that things are, are going to get worse before they get better. But we have to bank on that getting better happening afterwards. I want to give a big thank you to Franco Terrazano, Federal Director for the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Catherine Swift, President of Working Canadians and a tremendous advocate for business owners all across this country and Philip Cross, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and former chief economic analyst at Statistics Canada. Uh, Franco, Catherine, Philip, it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I don't even bother asking for the hope anymore. I just cling to this idea that perhaps diagnosing the problem is the first step to doing something about it. But a lot of really good feedback and also some concrete ideas from our panelists there. We just have to, as they were saying, hope that politicians start to pay attention. There was a great episode of The West Wing. I think it was one of the very first episodes in, in one of the first seasons, probably season one, where no one who was working in The West Wing, working around the president of the United States, knew the cost of a gallon of milk milk. American, of course, the gallon of milk. And except it was one, one guy, one guy, a, a young guy who was making probably close to minimum wage working in an entry level position. But none of these other people that were affecting change and controlling the economy knew what a gallon of milk costs. And you know what? I bet that a liter of milk is not a price tag that a lot of politicians could rhyme off at this point. We've got to end things there. My thanks to all of you for tuning in to the program here. This is the Andrew Lawton Show on True North. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, God bless, and good day. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news. <laughs>